Hi everybody, Duncan Green here. Welcome back to the From Poverty to Power podcast. Uh, Going to run you through the last couple of weeks' um, posts. There's been a bit of a break because I went on holiday. I went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is amazing. We go every year, me, me and my wife Kathy. We saw 25 shows in seven days, which is feasible because the shows are only about an hour long. So you can actually have plenty of time between them and you just get this fantastic range of theatre, music, comedy. Um, so I think Kathy's favourite show was a show called Throne, which was a play about women wrestlers uh, uh, competing in Scottish games, um, which managed to include loads of themes around sexuality and, and, and um, identity. Uh, and I, it was great, but I have to say I also really liked the one-man show uh, Recreating Die Hard. Um, so that gives you a sense of the range of things. Yeah, we saw weird um, Korean plays, uh, two people pretending to be fish in a tub, trying to escape in a tank, rather. Um, yeah, comedy comedy singing. It was just so good. And then we went for a couple of days walking in the Pentlands, which are these amazing heather moors just south of Edinburgh. Heartily recommended. While I was away... As I, uh, I think I'm going to do it regular as a regular thing. I gave over the blog to the uh, students of my course on activism at the LSE. Um, uh, as part of their course, they have to write a, uh, a campaign strategy on a campaign of their choice, um, something which fires them up, and uh, and that has to be accompanied by a blog or a video. And so I took some of the best ones and. Get, put them up on the video uh, on the blog in advance. So the first one was by Valerie Barkey, uh, and it was "Are you man enough to snip?" In a society where reproductive choices often fall disproportionately on women, and options grow increasingly limited, with abortion bans reinstated in multiple states already, she's American. It's a it's time to break free from outdated stereotypes that somehow equate taking responsible steps to prevent unplanned pregnancy with being emasculated. Thanks a lot, toxic masculinity. So let's dive into why vasectomies are actually a great birth control option. Number one, dispelling the myths. Let's start off with snipping some rumours in the bud. Get it? Contrary to popular belief, getting snipped doesn't affect your manhood or libido. It's a straightforward procedure that simply prevents sperm from reaching the semen. So rest assured, your masculinity won't take a hit, and even better, they can be reversed. Two, quick and mostly painless. But won't it be painful, we hear you ask? Fear not, dear reader. Vasectomies are typically performed in about 20 minutes under local anaesthesia, making the procedure speedy and virtually painless. You might experience some discomfort afterward, but afterwards, but it's usually mild and easily managed with over-the-counter painkillers and... Recovery takes up to a week max. Seems like a small price to pay for long-term peace of mind, if you ask me. Three, kiss your pregnancy worries goodbye. One of the most significant advantages of vasectomy is its efficacy as a birth control method. It is up to 99.99% effective. Don't believe me? Check out this article with a link. Number four, the cost factor. But it is, isn't it expensive, you inquire? Not necessarily. Vasectomies are often covered by insurance, reducing or eliminating the financial burden. Considering the long-term savings on contraception, a vasectomy can be a cost-effective choice. However, one caveat is that the cost of reversals is unfortunately not as commonly covered by insurance. 
and some links to read about that. Number five, breaking the stigma. Now let's address the elephant in the room, the stigma associated with vasectomies. Society has often portrayed male sterilization as emasculating or a sign of weakness. But here's another way to look at it. Choosing vasectomy demonstrates responsibility, consideration for your partner's well-being, and a commitment to shared family planning. It's time to break free from outdated stereotypes and celebrate men who are man enough to snip. Not yet convinced? Okay, you're a tough nut to crack. We get it. This is an important decision. But hear this. Did you know that Jay Cutler and George Clooney have both undergone vasectomies themselves? Don't believe me? Here's a list of famous men who have done so. And ask yourself once more, what's holding you back? Now, it's a great topic, but it's, also, it's just written with verve. It's, it's just good blogging to be that chatty and personal. And I really like that piece from Valerie Barkey. Second one, Jessica Louise. There's a chicken in the desert. Great title. Is that what? What's going on here? What is a food desert? They're not literal deserts, but they may as well be. Food deserts, is what she's talking about, are areas, often urban, where there is limited access to, to nutritional and affordable food. This could be for a range of reasons, high poverty levels, bad public transport links, or just simply a lack of affordable supermarkets in the area. It's not that there's no food in these areas, it's just that the only options are small convenience stores, which are more expensive, or takeout places, basically just your local chippy or kebab shop. With rising living costs, people are experiencing reduced budgets, and for some people in food deserts, the cost of the bus fare to the supermarket could be the cost of a meal. Food deserts are a massive problem in the US, with research suggesting a high correlation between food deserts and obesity. But there are a growing problem in the UK too, with over 10 million people living in one. What's the solution? There's no one simple solution. Getting supermarkets to build in underserved areas and improving nutrition education are just some of the things that can be done. So what is being done? A campaign has been launched by a coalition headed by Trussell Trust, and I think Jessica has links to the Trust, to the Trust which runs a load of food banks, which aims to encourage supermarkets to build in food deserts in the UK. In various locations, pop-up supermarkets have appeared, which aim to raise awareness about the importance of accessible and healthy food. A petition has been launched asking the government to take action. Support from Kellogg's. Corporate support can make all the difference to a campaign like this. Big, multi-million corporations hold a lot of power in raising awareness and calling the public to action. Last month, <coughs> excuse me, serve a coffee, it was announced that Kellogg's would be joining the coalition and recently a key part of their campaign was rolled out. They changed their cornflakes packaging and the famous cornflakes chicken is now in a desert. This is a great tactic, a marketing stunt that not only puts Kellogg's in the headlines and boost sales for them, but also reaches millions of households. The effect is eye-catching. Enter any cereal aisle in any supermarket and you notice it immediately. Scan the QR code and you're taken to the government petition, which has already reached 10,000 signatures. So will it work? Time will tell. But as people become more aware of the issue, pressure on the government to act builds. Offering tax breaks to large supermarkets who choose to build in food deserts is a good incentive to encourage them into these areas. Tesco's and Sainsbury's, the largest supermarkets in the UK, are probably the most likely candidates to respond to the campaign. Whatever ends up happening, Kellogg's will go down in history as being the first cereal company to put a chicken in a desert. We can only hope the chicken will survive by accessing affordable, healthy chicken feed. Again, lovely writing. 
Third uh, blog of the, this selection from my students, Martin Caforio on Green To Go, the better way to take away. When you get a daily coffee, your local chain tells you the cup is sustainable. Recyclable plastic, compostable, responsibly sourced and produced. But even when you recycle it correctly, cafes and chains are forcing you to contribute to the more than 3 billion disposable cups wasted each year in the UK and the rising CO2 emissions related to this waste. In fact, only 0.25% of all cups are recycled. 0.25%, one four hundredth. That's because most cups advertised as recyclable end up in a landfill due to coffee contamination or because they actually have to be recycled in store. Not very to go, is it? Now, when you pay for your monthly coffee subscription, part of that money, this is what he's proposing in his campaign, part of that money goes towards each one of the three plus billion paper cups used each year in the UK. That increases you and your coffee shop's carbon emissions and slowly takes money from your wallet, which would be better spent on a sweet pastry or tasty sandwich. We think that if you go to your coffee shop each day with your own cup, you should pay less for your subscription. Not only would this save you money each month, but it would also drastically reduce the carbon footprint of your morning caffeine boost and help reduce landfill waste and the piles of paper and plastic on our streets. So what he's got is a scheme called Green To Go, a greener and cheaper monthly subscription. It's easy to forget your cup, but through our proposed partnership with reusable cup brands, you would receive a slim, easily storable cup with your first month, and it can become part of your daily go bag when you leave home each day. And the, he's got sort of, you know, options and nice worked up media graphics and, uh, and things like that. Another nice blog. Um, the students had an option. So, you know, for each of these campaigns, they have to come up with a kind of problem analysis, stakeholder mapping, uh, and then a sort of justification for particular strategy and tactics. But with the blog, they could either do a, write a, a written blog or they could do a video. So the final one in this series uh, on the week while I was in Edinburgh was some of the student vlogs. No one uses that word anymore, but the videos um, that, that uh, they did when that was their option. Uh, and the three students who did this were Carlota Lopez, Deborah Francis and Holly Ingram. I won't talk you through the vlogs because they're videos and they're really nice. They're short, they're funky, you know, do have a look at them. But Carlotta's was on uh, ways to make Mexico's streets safe for women, but then segued somehow into voting for her to become the next president, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, Deborah Francis was on reforming laws on buggery in Dominica and Holly Ingram on promoting young women's leadership in Britain's churches. So what I hope you get from those topics is the range of things that the students on my master's course feel exercised about. So issues of identity, issues of sexuality, um, gender rights, uh, equity. Uh, there's lots of stuff on refugees. So it's really interesting. Each year, each, each year I get a kind of snapshot of where people in their mid-twenties are at in terms of their passions. And I think I really should go back over the years and do a kind of analysis to see if it's changing over time. I've done six or seven years now of this course. Um, but really good stuff and thanks to all the contributors. Then back to boring old me, but actually not boring old me, guest posts. Because when you get back from holiday, there's always a pile of things to do. It's quite hard to get the blog started again. Uh, luckily, I had a post ready and waiting. A historic global agreement on tax is under threat. Here's why. This was a post by Farida Benner, which was originally published on the Kilisa website. It's a good website, K-I-L-I-Z-A. Check it out. 
Every year, an estimated 312 billion US dollars are lost in unpaid corporate taxes around the world. By using legal loopholes, many companies avoid paying their dues, often to southern countries that host their operations and provide cheap labour. This happens because the governments of those countries are unable to enforce their fiscal policies and there is still no global tax agreement to protect their interests. But something is about to change. After decades of attempts by the Global South and thanks to the efforts of African countries, the United Nations is set to discuss the possibility of having its first ever tax convention at the General Assembly in September. This will be a first historic step towards reforming the international tax system and levelling the playing field. Obviously the stakes are colossal and many interest groups are opposing this landmark change. I discuss what's happening with Abdul Muhyid Chowdhury, an international tax, tax expert from the South Centre, which is a think tank representing 55 countries from Africa, Asia, Latin America and the Caribbean. I've worked with the South Centre and it's brilliant. I used to work with them a lot when I was working on WTO issues. The South Centre also supports the Group of 77 or G77 and China, which today includes 134 southern countries. These Gs are always baffling because they start off with a certain number of countries. Others join and then the number no longer matches the name of the group. Get over it. Hi, Abdul, says uh, Farida. You've been following the global tax discussion very closely for years. Are we really so close to reaching a historic turning point with the UN tax convention in September? And Abdul says yes and no. The good news is that for the first time, the UN General Assembly has decided to begin negotiations on tax cooperation. And now the UN Secretary General is preparing options to take this way forward. Traditionally, the power to set global tax rules does not sit with the UN, but with the OECD. That's the club of mostly rich countries. Enforcing the UN tax convention would lead to a power shift in favour of the broader UN community. It is not a coincidence, and this is the less positive news, that we're witnessing a parallel negotiation in Paris at the same time as the UN General Assembly is preparing for its historic session. As we speak, the OECD is negotiating a separate agreement with many southern countries as part of its inclusive framework. Once finalised, this agreement called the Amount A Multilateral Convention, what a weird title, is supposed to be the OECD's solution, especially for taxing the digital economy, big tech like Google and Amazon. While this solution would be groundbreaking, in that it would be the first multilateral convention of its kind, the language used minimises the tax obligations of the digital economy and could significantly limit the taxing rights of southern countries. The OECD is trying to finalise Amount A and open it for signature as soon as possible, maybe even as early as October or November. If enough southern governments sign it, this OECD agreement will kill the move towards a UN tax convention because southern governments will find it difficult to support both Amount A and the UN tax convention at the same time. 2023 may go down in history as the year of global tax failure. And then... Um, Farida says, so why do you think the OECD convention will undermine UN tax efforts? The Amount A agreement would not allow southern governments to tax companies, especially multinationals headquartered in the Northern Hemisphere, as equitably as the United Nations alternative solution. For example, estimates from the South Centre and the African Union's Coalition for Dialogue on Africa show that the 84 countries representing the combined membership of the African Union and the South Centre 
would get 5 billion under amount A and 12 billion under UN regulations. Agreeing a UN tax convention would also bring higher levels of transparency, for example, by requesting that multinational enterprises publicly disclose how much tax they pay to each country where they operate, a practice known as country-by-country -country reporting. This seems common sense, and yet today it is still not possible, which means we have no way of knowing if individual countries receive their fair share of tax revenues. Farida, so is, it, so is the Amount A Convention a done deal already? Foreign Affairs and Finance Ministers in Southern countries will soon be scratching their heads to decide whether to sign Amount A or not once it is publicly, rele publicly released and open for signature. It's not an easy decision. There is huge pressure on them to sign. For many of these countries, there are direct implications for the aid they receive from OECD members. They risk losing that aid if they decide not to sign. Elsewhere, there have already been reports of other northern-based financial institutions, such as the IMF, pressurising countries like Sri Lanka into dropping their plans for a digital service tax and signing on to Amount A instead. However, nothing is set in stone yet. Other options might prevail in the end. Let's imagine several scenarios based on what I've seen so far. In scenario A, most southern countries do not sign the Amount A Convention. This would be mainly because the USA does not sign it. The current US administration has never committed to sign it and Republicans are concerned at the prospect of US companies being taxed worldwide. In that situation, the Global South would then decide to go its way, its own way, either with national measures like the digital service tax that he mentioned in, in, in Sri Lanka, or a UN treaty-based solution with individual countries. So that could lead to a period of chaos and conf confusion, but also generate support for a multilateral UN tax convention. Scenario B, the US and other big players may sign Amount A uh, may sign Amount A, but decide not to ratify it. And again, um, yeah, you would then get a, a better chance for a UN tax convention to, to, make, to, to make sense of it all. In scenario C, let's imagine that despite the differences, the largest OECD member states, including the US, sign Amount A. That would create a domino effect on all other OECD members to go along and sign as well, and greater pressure on southern governments to accept the status quo. In that case, the UN Tax Convention would effectively be doomed. So those are the kind of options which we're going to see play out over the next year or a couple of years. Is there another way out of this situation or is this bound to be a zero-sum game between Amount A and the UN Convention? And um, uh, Abdul says, yes, there is an alternative, a scenario D. Start changing the rules at domestic level instead of waiting for international tax conventions to be agreed. Companies need to comply with domestic law first, wherever they are. If both northern and southern governments work harder on their national legislation and speak louder about tax inequality globally, we can make some progress in the meantime and we can find allies across dividing lines. That seems like a very wise suggestion. Isn't that what's already happening? What's missing? Uh, yes, to some extent. But there is still too little noise about what's happening at the OECD and at the UN on taxing rights. We need these negotiations to be more visible. We need more people to realise that the next few weeks will be crucial to global efforts to tackle not just tax rules, but inequality at large. Too often we tend to consider tax discussions as too technical to engage, but what's at stake is the future of so many southern countries. Increasing development assistance to these governments while undermining their ability to tax digital services or fabric production within their borders will only make them more dependent. So I thought that was a really good 
piece. Uh, I had no idea this was going on. Uh, and there's plenty of links there if you want to find out more. Then the final piece, uh, amazing new resource guide on humanitarianism. So I've become much more aware of the whole humanitarian world of emergency response since I started working on the Gelly uh, training with humanitarians around the world. Um, and it's fascinating to find this whole, you know, I've been previously, I've been really in advocacy and long-term development, which are the other two bits of the aid, you know, uh, triptych. Um, now I'm getting much more into humanitarianism and this guide is brilliant. It's from ALNAP, uh, which is the Global Network for Advancing Humanitarian Learning. And it's, um, it's pulled together 25 years worth of high quality research, learning and guidance on countless issues related to humanitarian performance. This is their words, but I think it's totally fair. Um, so it's got, you know, uh, I mean, it's hard to do justice to it, but it's a gateway to more than 800 reports, analyses, blogs, and multimedia assets organized into subject areas aligned to academic courses and programs with a humanitarian focus. So whether you're an academic, a student, or a practitioner, you can find something on the area you're working on. So the themes covered include, and this is just a non-exhaustive list, the principles of humanitarianism, things like neutrality, impartiality, which people spend a lot of time arguing about, the evolution of aid over time, localization and decolonization, serious hot topic, accountability to affected populations, another hot topic, cash programming, ditto, human mobility and forced displacement, food security and hunger, pandemics and epidemics, climate-related disasters, humanitarian leadership and decision-making, adaptive management, safeguarding and protection, and innovation and technology. I mean, that's great. Right? The, the, the guide itself is 38 pages, but it's a gateway to you know thousands of pages of, of good stuff. So I heartily recommend that you spend a few minutes browsing that and seeing what it could add to, 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 to your current reading list. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. I hope to get the blog up and running more seriously next week and I'll be back then with a roundup. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye.